If you will turn to Jeremiah 21. Jeremiah 21. I have a Christmas wreath. Can we just have a moment of honesty in the room? How many of you have heard the Christmas story too many times? No one would dare, would they? No one would dare. So, confession, as pastors, Christmas and Easter are some of the hardest Sundays for us because it's like everybody knows the texts, the stories, the same message all the time. And it's, sometimes it's just like, the, uh, you can teach Easter, go ahead. <laughs> you can have Christmas. So that's what Pastor Mike did. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, I, I think th- there's a danger in tradition and familiarity where we can we can look at the movies and the nativity and and the stories and we hear the same like two to three passages every single christmas and while we know they're important and we cherish them there can be such a familiarity with them that we kind of forget what it is that it's trying to say to us so i wanted to use something as common as the christmas wreath and jeremiah since we're in it anyways to bring out something that I think we want to try to walk out um, all year long, but something that Christmas initiates and reminds us of. So here, now if you already knew this or thought of this, good for you. It just dawned on me, so I'm catching up. But here is a wreath, right? And I grew up doing something called the Advent wreath. If anybody's familiar, it's a wreath and there's four candles on it to mark the weeks of Advent. Now, Advent is just a fancy religious term for the coming of Jesus. And so this, this, this season of Christmas is celebrated by lighting a different candle on each week. But it dawned on me that here we have, wrapped in this wreath, the story of the gospel. And no, not just because it's round for eternity or that usually they're green um, to signify eternal life and never dying, but because of the actual structure around it. Now, I was unable to get an Advent wreath. Besides, the candles would fall out anyways once I held, held it up for you guys. But so you'll have to use your imaginations. You can do that, right? So at 12 o'clock, imagine this is a clock. 12 o'clock is one point. 3 o'clock is the second point. 6 o'clock, right? And then 9 o'clock. We got our terminology down? We got the corners? If you can call a circle a corner. So 12, 3, 6, and 9. 12 o'clock represents what's normal. 12 o'clock is Jesus, the eternal known as Christ, the eternal sitting with the Father. They created the cosmos together. But something happened. Because of God's love for his humans and their waywardness and their lostness, they had to come to us. Because we would keep running away, they wanted to come to us. So, Jesus comes to us. We move from 12 to 3 o'clock in this movement of he comes down from the throne to us. This first step we call Christmas. We call, fancy language, the incarnation or the enfleshment, the embodiment of the eternal God. He comes to us. 
And then from three to six o'clock, once he comes to us, he goes to the cross and he dies. And we're at the very bottom of the wreath. This is low. This is the death of the Son of God. And it's so brutal that he feels abandonment. He begins this adventure to come to us, and then we throw him down in the ditch. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, the moment that defines history, this is of course Easter, we come to six o'clock, and from six to nine, we see him coming up out of that valley, up out of that ditch, up out of that lowly place in what we call the resurrection. He comes back to life. And he's leading us, notice how this is moving, we go from descending, here at six o'clock, we now start ascending. He comes out and says, follow me, all you who are following me, keep coming, the path will eventually go upward, we're going to find new life. And then from nine to twelve, guess where we go? Christ goes back to his original home. He goes back to the throne, but now he's sitting as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, because he's purchased. He's purchased the nations. He's purchased us. We call that last segment the Ascension, one of the least celebrated parts of the life of Jesus, yet the most important, because it's the one that gives us every single guarantee. It's the one that gives us all the gifts, because he's on the throne. And so here we have this circle and these four stages, and we see that Jesus started by coming to us. There was a moment when he had to brave this adventure, and he had to take the first step, and the first step went on this downward slide all the way to the cross. And that's why we're calling this message in Jeremiah, the difficult descent of surrender. There was a moment when Jesus had to surrender and say, What we need to do to save the humans is what I will go through. And much like sitting in altitude at the top of an an airplane, at the top, there's a moment where you got to look over that threshold and and be like, I'm going to do this. And as soon as you jump out of that airplane, that is complete surrender. There is complete trust that your parachute is going to bring you down. You can't do anything about what happens once you step out. You are at the mercy of gravity and whatever velocity you hit the ground with. That's complete surrender. And Jesus comes and steps down and falls all the way down to the cross so that he can lead us back up to the Father. This is what Christmas is about. This is the cycle of Christmas. Jesus took the first step of surrender and it can be difficult. And I fear that in the room right now, we have received some sort of beckoning from God. He's nudging us to the edge and he's saying, just do it. Just do it. I promise it'll be okay. I'm like, I can't. I can't do it. Because surrender is a difficult descent. It is challenging to trust something outside of yourself. And yet, we are missing, if we continue to refuse his invitation if we continue to refuse the whole message of Christmas and say, I would rather stay in the comfortable zone of what I always do, then we are missing the life, the ascent part of the wreath. We're missing the whole half of Christianity that Jesus came to offer us. God wants to complete us like the wreath. He wants to make you complete. He wants to make you whole. He wants his life to flow through you. But as long as we refuse to surrender, it will 
never flow through us. It will come to us and it will be frustratingly stopping short. Be like, there's never enough. How come God's never enough? And you're always searching for newer experiences. You're always doing altar calls over and over and over because maybe this time it will work. You're always seeking ways to earn or get more of the God whom you're missing. Because you know there's something more. He's more complete than this, but I'm not feeling it. Because friends, Christmas is about when Jesus took the difficult descent into surrender to start the cycle. And it's inviting us to do the same. Yeah, prove it. I will. I will. We'll get to the Christmas passages. But let's go through Jeremiah first so that we can see why did this entire, why did the whole theme of surrender come into my mind during the season of Christmas? Well, because that's what Jeremiah is challenging us with. So let's look at it in Jeremiah 21, and you're going to see this so this challenge that Jeremiah presented to the king of Jerusalem. So in Jeremiah 21, we are all the way two years right before the city falls. You'll remember that Jeremiah jumps around chronologically, much like a mind that's been disturbed and is suffering is hard to tell events in their actual order. Jeremiah is scrambled like that. And so we're right at the cusp of the fall. This is 588 BC, 588. In 586, the whole city is leveled. The temple dismantled and every Jew, except for the very poor to work the land, are taken over into exile in Babylon. We're two years away, which means the Babylonian army at this moment is surrounding the city. Everywhere you look, It's like floodwaters coming up to cut you off, except these are living warriors with swords that can do a lot of damage to you. And they're surrounding the city so that you can't get out, you can't go get food, you can't go get supplies, you can't get water, you can't let your trades come in and your trades go out. You are stuck in the city like a coffin waiting to die. So that then they can just invade the city and it's an easy battle. This is what's happening. The two-year wait has begun. So, in chapter 21, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. When King Zedekiah, if you always want to remember who Zedekiah is, he's the last king of Jerusalem. Z, makes it easy, right? Z is the last. He is the last king of Jerusalem. Zedekiah sent to Jeremiah, Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, uh, Maaseah, something like that, saying, inquire of Yahweh for us. So ask God, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Look around. They're surrounding us. Please, Jeremiah, ask God to deliver us. Perhaps, they continue, perhaps Yahweh will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make Babylon withdraw from us. So, Jeremiah, presumably asks God, comes back to him in verse 3 and says, You want to know the answer? Yeah, we're desperate. Okay, Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls, and I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you, What? Yeah. 
God didn't say, I'm going to fight against Babylon. I will fight against you, Zedekiah, king of Israel. I will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm, in anger and fury and in great wrath. Fire and fury, right? Someone said that. And I will strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares Yahweh, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in the city who survive the pestilence, sword, and famine. I will give them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives. And he shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. Good news. Glad tidings of great joy. Good thing Jeremiah wasn't sent to the shepherds, right? That would have been hilarious. And to this people, verse 8, you shall say, Thus says Yahweh, so now Jeremiah is addressing not just Zedekiah the king, he's addressing the people of Jerusalem. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But, here's the good news. He who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. God gave Jeremiah the hardest job. It was his job to tell the people, God's had it with you. It's done. It's over. And then when they say, stop saying that, all the popular prophets are saying that God's going to deliver us, Jeremiah had to keep saying the unpopular thing. Then, when the king says, Jeremiah, we've exhausted all of our hopes, tell us what to do, Jeremiah has to say, well, frankly, king, it's not going to end well, so I suggest that you surrender to the king of Babylon. Just give up now. And then Jeremiah turns to the people, to the king's horror, hey, everybody, we're all going to die unless we right now walk out the city walls and give ourselves into the hands of our enemies. They will spare our lives and take us to Babylon and we can find a new way to live. Now, the king is thinking, this is the worst propaganda I have ever heard in my life. This prophet, who's supposed to be on our team, is telling the people to give up. God is not going to deliver us. That's a, that's a really hard message to give. So now, the king sees Jeremiah not only as loony, but as treacherous. He's committing treason by telling people to betray King Zedekiah and to go join the king of Babylon. Ooh. How did Jeremiah live through this book? I don't know. So, that's the difficult descent of surrender. Can you imagine that now? You think about surrendering out of an airplane. Some of you are like, I'd totally do that. I don't, I don't know if I would. But surrendering from the city that you believe God's supposed to protect because a prophet told you he's not going to protect it, so I'm going to go walk into the angry hands of my enemy. That's real surrender. That's a difficult descent. That's leaving behind everything you know, and it's throwing out the hope that we'll be delivered, and it's saying, all right, we will go to a foreign land with all their foreign food, their foreign gods, their foreign currency, their foreign songs, their foreign language. We will try to make a new life there. We will be definitely the minority, the outcast will be excluded. We'll probably have to live in some sort of a, a slum or a ghetto just to make ends meet. 
In fact, many of them are probably going to be turned into slaves for the richer Babylonians, mistreated, used as property on their end. And Jeremiah's like, look, this is your best option. Turn your back on everything you know and go down that difficult descent of surrender. But that's what Jesus did. I mean, he had a, if you want to say it, it is, the extreme for him was even bigger. The throne of heaven to the cross, the worst form of execution the Romans could invent for the lowest life. Just to put it the way they saw it, Roman citizens were never crucified. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen because crucifixion was too beneath humanity. Only slaves and those deemed not fit to live were crucified. That is a difficult descent of surrender. Well, what else is going on? In chapter 22, in verse 11, you have these messages that Jeremiah is giving to the sons of Josiah. Do you remember Josiah? Josiah was the king, the last one to have a revival. Everyone got really excited about the law of God, but it fell away very quickly. He had some sons who were not very effective. Verse 11, you see this message. That says the Lord concerning Shalom. Shalom, the son of Josiah. Shalom was the nickname of Jehoahaz who reigned for a mere three months. And then he was taken captive into Egypt. Then, in verse 18, you see a message to um, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Jehoiakim ruled 11 years, and he, we don't actually know what happened to him, we just know that he ended his reign at some point. So Jehoiakim had a son named Jehoiachin, And I think, I think even the Hebrews found that confusing. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin. So they just, they just nicknamed him Coniah. You see that in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, through Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Um, so now, Coniah, or Jehoiachin, is being addressed. And Jehoiachin reigns for a great three months. That's it. Just three months. And then Zedekiah. That's right after that. He's the last of the last. So there's this message to each of these final kings before Zedekiah. And a lot of them are basically like, don't even cry for his death. He's going to be like dung coming from a donkey's rear end in the field. I mean, nobody cares, right? Nobody cries over, oh, the donkey's pooping. Somebody take care of it. Move it somewhere nice. Nobody's just like, ugh. That, that's what they're likening. Um, I, if I remember right, it was Jehoiakim. He was likening him to that. Um, Shalom, or Jehoahaz, was accused of ripping off the poor. He wanted the good life, the 6 to 12 o'clock side of the wreath. So what did he do? He gave everybody else a 12 to 6 o'clock life, a descent. And so what is being railed against is that's called injustice. That's unjust. You cannot, everybody is going to live through the cycle. You're going to go down to go up. You cannot, just because your king decide, I'm going to live going up the whole time, and I'm going to make sure you go down for me. That's injustice. And that's what the king was doing. You look at 22 verse 13, for example. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? 
Is this, does nice wood make you a king? He's asking. Did, you, did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? It was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? God's saying, if you want to know me, then you need to show justice. You need to lift up the poor and take the proud down a notch. We need to have things fair. But this king wasn't having any of that. So that's an example of the things that he's saying. You're getting a state of the union, if you will, um, as Jerusalem's about to fall. You see what their last kings were doing. But then verse chapter 23. Chapter 23 we come to the most Christmassy part of Jeremiah at this point. 23 verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. The shepherds are the kings. They're destroying the flock. He goes on saying how they're being mean. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. In other words, this whole nightmare surrounding us right now, gone because this son of David will reign and do everything right. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. This branch, he calls him, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. I mean, come on, people. That's a Christmas tree right there. It's also Jesus. Jesus is this one who came as the son of David, and he's the one who was the branch who actually bore the fruit supposed to bear. He actually did what a king should do. He protected people. He led people. He made things right. He built things up. He brought security. He is the real king. And unlike the other kings who just want the good life, Jesus went down the difficult descent of surrender through the cross and up into resurrection and to the throne. This was his path. And that's why we have a complete and a whole king. The rest of chapter 23, we see the antithesis to Jesus. We see the lying prophets that Jeremiah had to deal with. The lying prophets would say all kinds of great things, like verse 16. Um, that says, Yahweh of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of Yahweh. So, in other words, the, the lying prophets are going, come on guys, sit, sit around the circle together. Think of the happiest thought you can think. Yeah. That's what we tell the people. Come on, Johnny. Next week, you talk about Neverland. And Melvin, you the week after, you talk about candy canes and unicorns. I mean, I don't know what it would be for them, but this is just a bunch of just hogwash of let's just think happy thoughts and we will bring the kingdom into a better place. They're bringing it out of their heads. So look what they're saying. Verse 17, they say continually to those who despise the word of Yahweh, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So they're just basically going around telling everyone, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. Don't worry. I know, they're surrounding our gates. It's going to be fine. 
a lot you could say about them. 23 verse, nine, uh, verse 29 more. Um, God's saying to Jeremiah, look, is not my word like fire, declares Yahweh, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? I mean, these guys say things that make you feel good, but it's not really hitting home. And in verse 33, when one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of Yahweh? You shall say to them, you are the burden and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. Okay, so the burden is something a prophet would say, like they would get a vision, right? And when they get the vision, it would weigh so heavily upon them that they would have to share it. That's how the prophets work. They knew it came from God because it just, it just oppressed them until they got it out of them. Well, when uh, that's what, there's this big play on words. What is the burden of the Lord? When a prophet or priest asks you, hey, what, what is the big word from God? You're supposed to turn and say, you're the problem. You're the burden. And so... Jeremiah is just having fun with them. And then in verse 36, but the, um, but the burden of Yahweh you shall mention no more, for the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, Yahweh of hosts our God. So now they're going around, not only saying everything's fine, but they're saying everyone should do this. Oh, hashtag God told me to tell you. Oh, no, 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 don't listen to Jeremiah. Surrendering to the Babylonians is the most ungodly thing we could ever do. Hashtag God told me to tell you. Like, they just make everything up and say, oh, but it came from God. And the people are eating this up. And God's like, guys, guys, no. Jeremiah, keep doing what you're doing. I know it's hard, and you're in this difficult descent of, like, being rejected by everybody, and you're surrendering to my words, and you're being faithful to the call I've given you, and nobody's really listening because you've got these lying prophets who are amassing more followers, and they're more popular. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you are actually saying my words, and that's all the difference. They will be held in account for how they took my name in vain, but you will be rewarded. So then our last chapter, 24, we come back to the setting of Nebuchadnezzar and Jeremiah's message of surrender, and he has this vision of figs. It says in verse, boy, that's a long verse. I'm looking for verse 2, and it just goes on and on. Okay, we'll just start in verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. So that's, there's another nickname for him. Remember it was Coniah, he's Jehoiachin, now he's Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. I guess when your name sounds just like your dad's chin, it's, you get all kinds of nicknames, and some that are probably not very nice either the king of Judah, together with his officials. So, so Nebuchadnezzar had taken Chin Man into, into exile. And now Jeremiah sees this vision and it says, Behold, two baskets of figs placed before were placed before the temple of Yahweh. Verse 2, one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. But the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And Yahweh said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad. So bad they can't not be eaten. Is this a trick question? It's kind of like so obvious, right? It's like, I see it. That's what I see. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, like these good figs, 
So I will reward as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good and will bring them back, eventually, back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am Yahweh and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah, those good figs you saw in the vision, those are the ones who go down the difficult descent of surrender. They say, we're not staying in this cursed city anymore. Let's go to the Babylonians and let's go into exile and let's go and live in their land. And God is telling Jeremiah, those who take that step to that horribly hard call of surrender, they will eventually, it said, I will eventually bring them back. I will build them up. I will not tear them down. I will plant them. I will not pluck them out. They will eventually come up the other side of the wreath but they have to take that difficult first step of surrender the bad figs is in verse 8 but those uh, but thus says Yahweh like the bad figs over here that are so bad that they cannot be eaten so will I treat Zedekiah the king of Judah his officials the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt Egypt was one of the other places that they went to bail out ah let's flee to Egypt Um, he's saying look those people are like the bad figs they're going to have a bad end a bad ruin So we began this section of Jeremiah's message with Zedekiah asking, what should we do? And Jeremiah just said, you should surrender. And then we end in chapter 24 with this vision of those who surrender are good figs and those who don't surrender are rotten figs. By the way, this is the other Christmassy part of this passage. Bring us some figgy pudding. So bring, yeah, yeah. See how I work that in? Now our Christmas message is done. Just kidding. Okay. So, so I think you guys got it, right? There's this, there's this really difficult call of surrender that Jerusalem's calling the people into. Now we're going to look at our two classic Christmas passages and be done. In Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament. Matthew 1. It's actually chapter 1, yeah. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, that means committed to be married, before they came together sexually, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So you can just, you can fill in the blanks. How did that conversation go? Mary, what's that lump on your stomach? It's from the Holy Spirit. No, no, I I know how that sounds. It's from the Holy Spirit. No, believe me, Joseph. And Joseph's having none of it, right? It's like, I did not betroth this woman to have her be unfaithful to me. Like, that's not how this worked. It's going to make Joseph look bad. This is a society that was super sensitive to this. I mean, America is kind of just like, this is all everywhere now. But this, they, they, were, they would have been shamed. He would not have been able to find work. They would have been run out of town. He's not going to put up with this, so he's going to divorce her quietly. Do it the nice way. 
rather than stoning her like the law said. Joseph thinks he's doing the right thing. But in verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's really fascinating, this story. I mean, we know it so well, but here we have the exact same message that Jeremiah is challenging us with. We have the Christmas wreath presented to us yet again. Here we are at 12 o'clock, and Joseph has these these dreams of this woman he's about to marry. He's establishing life for it together. As a man would do, he would build his home on as an extension to his father's home in anticipation of bringing his wife into it. He is getting life prepared to bring Mary into it. And then in the midst of this planning and having hopes and dreams, in the midst of this, there's this rupture. There's this tragic event in which he recognizes Mary is not who I thought she was. And Joseph is confronted with the fact by Mary, Joseph, it's not as it seems. This child in me is from the Holy Spirit. And what does Joseph say? Nah. Now, undoubtedly, Joseph's in a hard spot. This would be a really hard arrangement to take on because nobody's going to believe their story. So here he is, 12 o'clock, ready to start his life, but then Mary's pregnant. We're moving down. And he's called to surrender at this point. Hey, hey, Joseph, Joseph, God is coming to him through Mary and saying, I have an adventure for you. I want to take you on a journey. I want to do something through you. Will you accept? And Joseph is like, this is not the way I planned it. This looks too difficult. I reject. I would rather have my life go forward the way I planned it. He needs help, doesn't he? Because I think you and I, deep inside, we are Joseph in this story. And we do this who knows how many times in our lives. Maybe even every day. God is calling us to do something through a person, through a situation, through an an emotion, an event. There's so many calls for us to take a step towards surrender. Yet we constantly reject and say, that's not from God. That's not from God. That's not from God. I'm going to go on with my plan. We are Joseph continually refusing the difficult descent of surrender. So he gets divine assistance. The angel comes to him in the dream and says, Joseph, it's true. And now Joseph is confronted with the reality of, I'm either going to continue to reject God and live in my little stagnant position, or I'm going to take this difficult descent into surrender and experience the thrill of completing the cycle, the wreath. Joseph said yes. He chose that difficult step of surrender. He went free fall into this moment of, I have no idea how we're going to raise the Son of God. We even will lose him one day in Jerusalem, but it's all going to work out somehow. And it did. Joseph was completed. His life was completed because he said, yes, I'll surrender. Then in Luke chapter 1, 
our second very famous Christmas story. Luke chapter 1. So it's two more books to your right. Luke 1 verse 22. And when the time came... That's, I'm in chapter 2, excuse me. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Just a common everyday town, like Lake Road, Twin Peaks, Crest Lane, Running Springs, so forth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. You and I would probably think, okay, who's going to die? What happened? Like, you know, the phone rings at the wrong time of night. It's never good news. Usually when an angel visits you at the wrong moment of your, on the path of your plans, you're like, oh no, (laughs) how are you going to ruin this? Uh, She wondered what this greeting might be. And the angel in verse 30 said to her, no, no, no. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end now, Mary does the natural thing, like Joseph. You're presented with, by God, by this chance. Come with me. Come to the plan I have for you. And we're like, mm, sounds difficult. And Mary's thinking, wait a minute. You're telling me I'm going to be pregnant. Do you understand how all the ladies in this town will look at me? Do you understand that I will never be able to go to the watering hole, or the well, at the same time as them? I want to go in the middle of the heat of the day because none of them will be able to stand me, or I won't be able to stand hearing them whisper about me. Do you understand how Instagram will blow up? All the memes they will make about Mary the whore and all these things? Like, do you understand that? Do you understand that? Like, that's what she's thinking. I can't accept this call. This is a really difficult slide. So she asks in a lot more of a polite manner than what was going on in her head, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her, in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. How, how is this possible? How can this be? And the angel says, with divine assistance, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Do you, do you see the parallels here? Joseph's presented with this path that was not the one he expected. He struggled with it. God gave him assistance, and he was able to say Yes. Mary is presented with this path. That's not the one she planned. She struggles with it, and God gives her assistance so that she can say yes. So, as she hears this assistance, she says in verse 38, 
Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's really fancy floral language for basically she said, yes, I accept this call. I accept this challenge. I am taking the plunge into the difficult descent of surrender. And each of these stories were promised assistance. God will always, in fact, we know that God will go with us in our descent into surrender because that's what Christmas told us Jesus did. He's done it. He will go down it with us. You don't have to do it alone. And so we are Mary, we are Joseph, and we are going to walk through our week. We're going to enter 2019, and there are going to be angels and pregnant betrothed women, uh, just symbols of the opportunities that God will be putting in our life, not literally angels and betrothed Marys, but there will be these moments where you say, that can't possibly be what God wants, because that's unordinary. But it's going to come, and we are going to be confronted with these, and the moment we find ourselves rejecting things just because, just immediately, no, that can't be, just like Zedekiah, when, when Jeremiah says, you need to surrender to the Babylonians, no, no, that can't be, that's not God's will. We have to be careful of those immediate reflexive reactions because it is in our nature as we're sitting in our comfort zone to reject everything that pulls us off the sofa. (laughs) Babe, now that you're up, can you get me some water? I dropped the remote. (laughs) Whatever it is. It's an illustration. We don't like to move, right? We need to be careful as we go into the new year not to make a habit, not to harden our hearts by continually resisting God's invitation to join him in the complete circle that fulfills our life. So, um, you and I know the Christmas story very well. And if you didn't, you knew now because you heard some of those stories. Stories are not just a plot line. They're not. They're not just a plot line. They're not just this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, the end. You, no one's going to care about that. Stories are about characters. They're about people who have interactions with other people who have to go through the plot and overcome challenges and obstacles and learn things about themselves and find resolutions for their problems. Stories are about characters who go through the plot. Now, I read this from a master who teaches this. He said, you can have a story with characters and no plot, but you can never have a story with a plot and no characters. In other words, you can have a story. You just put people together. They just talk. And all they do is just talk. You may form a bond toward one character or another. You may relate to them. and There might be something you care about them. But if you just have a sequence of actions, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. There's no attachment. There's nothing to relate to. You don't have a story. The story's in the person. And I, I walk out from that and I say, wow. Stories need bodies stories need bodies you take the body out of the story it's just history it's not even history history has bodies in it it's nothing 
Stories need bodies. We have the gospel, as you can say. Jesus came to earth, he died, he rose, he ascended. That's the gospel. But it wouldn't have meant anything if he didn't become a body. And if that body didn't interact with us and die. And if that body wasn't raised. And if that body didn't go to the Father. It would mean nothing for us. It would be some mythological story about some spirit who did these amazing things. But he became a body like us. In other words, he said, hey, your body can do this too. Not only could, your body needs to do this. It was made to, I'm going to show you where your body's supposed to go. And if we leave the Christmas stories as stories and traditions and nativity sets in our living room and under our tree, and we we leave them there and we never accept the call to surrender or adventure, then we will never embody the Christmas story. This story needs a body. Jesus was the first. He's asking us to come to. That Christmas is presenting this opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to enter Christmas through surrender. I'm going to enter life through surrender. I'm going to enter this situation through surrender. It's by showing up to the things that God is doing in and around us that we embody the story. Or we can leave it on the shelf, leave it to the orator or the preacher or the Bible and leave them there and say, on with my life. But Jesus took on a body because he's asking us to do the same. He's asking us to take the step with him. Yes, the Lord is my shepherd, but there's also the valley of the shadow of death. Will you step into it? Because at the end, he's got the table prepared for us. But we have to show up. We have to show up. So, you have this emotion you really don't like and you try to numb it you try to ignore it and somebody keeps bringing it up because of the way this person is but you're like I'm I'm just going to leave that there you're not showing up to this invitation that God has to go in the difficult route of surrender that eventually brings you to better life but I don't know I'm not going to show up to that a person has asked you specifically for your help I can't do that you're not going to show up the great thing about church, and with all of its flaws and faults and whatever, but the great thing about church is it teaches us the discipline of showing up. You may not feel like, Jeremiah is such a downer book. I don't feel like going, or, or like, uh, guest worship leader. I don't like it when they bring that guy up here. Like, you might have, or, uh, no more ham. <laughs> That's not what it, that's not why we show up though, right? We don't show up for things, events. We, we show up as a discipline to say, because Jesus showed up to us, we keep showing up. And it's this practice of, okay, I sinned. I can ignore that and pretend everything's good. Or I can show up and say, Father, I failed. Why don't you help me learn and grow out of this? Showing up. This is how we embody the story of the gospel. We start showing up. So you might be at a moment where you're comfortable, but you felt this thing, this call, this passion, or God's directly come to you and be like, you need to take the step in this direction. Like, no, that's scary. The valley is really dark down there. But we have to understand is that that is part of the path. It's always night before it's day in the Hebrew calendar. It was night, it was day the first day. It was night, it was day the second day, right? That's how the creation went. Always dark before light. 
This is the difficult descent, the difficult descent of surrender, is that we enter into everything God is doing through surrender. That's how you enter, is through surrender. There's no other back door. There's no sneaking around. We must give ourselves away. We must let go and say, okay, okay, I'm at your mercy. But the the beautiful thing is that we have a shepherd who's gone before us into that valley and has shown us how the story ends. We don't have to fear how our story ends. Yes, it's a deep slide. You're like, that's terrifying. But the shepherd's saying, it's a ride, isn't it? Because you know how this is going to end. Come on, friend. Come on, brother. Come on, sister, son, daughter. Come with me. Because you know how this ends. And so, the Christmas story is asking that we put our bodies into it. Will we, like Joseph, accept this call? Will we, like Mary, accept this call? Well, it begins with showing up and surrendering. Last thing to know, God is only calling you because he loves you. Jesus only made this journey because he loves us. It was the love for us that pulled him down and brought him around. If God is calling us and pulling us and beckoning us, we don't have to reject out of fear or saying, no, 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 I've got it better. We need to understand that that is love beckoning. And if we don't remember anything else, it's that if when we see that baby in flesh, we need to realize he surrendered because he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. I can surrender because he loves me and wants nothing but good for me.